Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Alan Winfield. Alan Winfield is a professor of robot ethics at the University of West England. He has so many credentials, I don't even know where to start. He's a member of the World Economic Forum Council on the Future of Technology, Values, and Policy. He's a member of the Ethics Advisory Board for the Human Brain Project and a a number more. He sits on multiple editorial boards, such as the Journal of Experimental and Theoretical Artificial Intelligence, and he's the associate editor of Frontiers in Evolutionary Robotics. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hello, uh, Byron. Um, uh, Great to be here. So I bet you get the same first question every interview you do. What is a robot ethicist? Ha. Well, these days I do, yes. Um, Well, I think the easiest, uh, simplest way to sum it up is someone who worries about the uh, ethical and societal uh, implications or consequences of robotics and AI. So I've become a kind of professional worrier. And so I guess that could go one of three ways. Is it ethics of how we use robots? Is it the ethics of how the robots behave? Or is it the ethics of that we actually could, well, I'll just go with those two. What do you think more about? Uh, well, it's both of those. Okay. Um, but uh, certainly um, the biggest proportion of my work is, uh, is the former. In other words, uh, how humans, that's human engineers, uh, manufacturers, uh, uh, and maintainers, uh, uh, repairers, and so on, in other words, everyone concerned with AI and robotics should behave responsibly and ethically to minimize the, you know, the, uh, as it were, um, unwanted uh, ethical uh, consequences, uh, harms, if you like, uh, to society, to, to individual humans and, 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 uh, and to the planet uh, from uh, AI and robotics. The, the second one of those, how... AI and, and robotics uh, can itself behave ethically. Uh, that's very much more a research problem. Uh, it, it doesn't have the urgency of the first. Um, uh, and, it's, and, and it really is a deeply interesting question. Um, and part of my research is certainly working on how we can build ethical robots. Well, and an ethical robot, is that the same as a robot that's a moral agent itself? Uh, yes, kind of. But, um, uh, bearing in mind that that um, uh, right now, the only full moral agents that exist are um, uh, adult humans like you and I. Uh, so uh, you know, not all humans, of course. Uh, so adult humans of of, of sound mind, as it were. Um, and of course, we simply cannot build uh, a, a comparable. Um, artificial moral agent so all we can the best we can do so far is to build kind of minimally ethical robots that um, that can in a very limited sense choose their actions based on ethical rules but um, unlike you and I cannot decide whether or not to behave ethically and certainly cannot as it would justify their actions uh, afterwards. So when when you think about the future and about ethical agents, or or even how we use them ethically, how do you wrap your head around the fact that there aren't any two people that that agree on on all ethics? And, And if you look around the world, the range of beliefs on what is ethical behavior and what isn't varies widely. So is it not the case you're shooting for a target that, that, that's, that's ill-defined to begin with? Uh, sure. Of course, you know, we, we certainly have that problem. Um, 
as you say, there are no, uh, there is no single universal set of ethical norms, and and even within, uh, you know, a particular tradition, say, you know, the Western ethical tradition, there are multiple, um, uh, you know, sets of ethics, as it were, you know, whether they're consequentialist ethics or, or deontic or virtue ethics. So it, it's certainly complicated, but you know, I would say that. Um, uh, you can abstract out of all of that, if you like, some very simple principles that that pretty much most people would agree. You know, which is that, uh, for instance, uh, a robot should not harm people, should not uh, cause people to come to harm. Um, that happens to be Asimov's first law of robotics, and and you know, uh, and I think it's a, a pretty um, wise, as it were, starting point. Um, I'm, really, I'm not proposing yeah. that Asimov's first law of robotics is universal, but but what I'm saying is that they're, they're, we probably can extract a very small number of of, of um, ethics, which, if not universal, uh, will uh, attract broad agreement, broad consensus. And yet, there's an enormous amount of money in, in, that goes into artificial intelligence to violate just that one, right? Robots' use in military, for instance, specifically. Exactly. Uh, yes. Building yes. robots that actually do uh, are designed to to kill and do harm, and so like you can't, we can't even kind of even start at something that at first glance seems pretty obvious. Well, indeed, um, and uh, you know the the weaponization of of AI, uh, well, and indeed any technology is, you know, is something that we we all should. Um, you know, be concerned about it's. You know, we. Uh, I mean, you're right that that the real world has, um, you know, has has weapons. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for a better world. World, you know, in which technology is not weaponized. So yes, you know, this is an idealistic uh, viewpoint. But but uh, you know, what do you expect a, a robot ethicist to be except an idealist? Uh, point taken. Uh, one more question on, on these lines. Is a, isn't a landmine a robot with artificial intelligence that is designed to kill? I mean, it, it's, uh, AI says if the object weighs more than 45 pounds, you know, I run this program, which uh, blows it up. Is that a robot that makes the kill decision itself? Well, you know, in a minimal sense, I suppose you might say uh, it's certainly an automata. Um, or an automaton. Uh, it has a sensor, which is the, you know the, the device that senses uh, uh, a weight upon it, uh, and an actuator, which is the thing that that you know uh, triggers the explosion. But the the fact is, of course, that that you know landmines are um, hideous weapons that that should have been banned uh, a long time ago, and and most mostly are banned. And and of course, you know the world is still. Um, clearing clearing up landmines. I would like to to switch gears a little bit and talk ab about emergence. Um, you you study swarm behavior. And, yeah, and I spent many years studying swarm behavior. That's right. Yes. I you you no doubt seen that the video of um, what and you're going to have to help me with the example here. It's a wasp that when threatened they make a, a spinning pinwheel where they're all kind of making their wings open and close in this tight unison where it gives the illusion there's this giant spinning thing. And, and it's like the wave in a, in a stadium, which happens so quickly, they, they're not like saying, oh, Bob just waved his wings, now it's my turn. Um, mm. Are you familiar with that phenomenon? I'm not, that's okay. a new one on the- uh, then, the then let's just talk about any other, um, how, how is it that anthills and beehives act in unison, is that, to, to achieve larger goals like cool the hive or or whatnot is that swarm yeah i mean the the the, the thing i think that uh, we need to try and do is to uh, dismiss any notion of of goals um you know the it's certainly true that that the um you know a termite's mound for instance um is an emergent consequence it's an emergent property of hundreds of thousands of termites doing their thing um, and and all of the you know the extraordinary sophistication we see the air conditioning you know, the 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 uh, the fungus farms and, and such like 
um, in the termites mound are all also emergent properties of the, as it were, the, the myriad microscopic um, interactions between the individuals, between each other and, and their environment, which is, you know, if you like, um, the materials and structure of the, uh, of the termite uh, nest. But, um, you know, if people say to me, um, you know, how do they know what they're doing and, and when they finished, the answer is, well, firstly, that no individual knows what it's doing in a termite's mound. Um, and secondly, there is no notion of, of finished. You know, the, the work of, of, of building and, and maintaining the, the termite's mound just carries on forever. Um, and, you know, um, the reason the world isn't full of termite mounds, it hasn't been, as it were, completely colonized by termites mounds is, is, is for all sorts of reasons, climate, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the envir environmental conditions, the, the fact that um, if termite mounds get too big, they'll collapse, you know, because of their own weight. Uh, larger animals, of course, will, uh, will uh, um, uh, you know, either deliberately break into the termite mounds uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to, 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 to feed on termites, or we'll just blunder into them and knock them over. So, uh, or, and there's flooding and, and weather and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, um, uh, the fact that, that when we see termite mounds, we, we, we imagine that this is a, 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 some, some kind of goal-oriented activity is unfortunately simply applying um, a very human metaphor to a non-human process. Um, there, is so, there is simply no um, uh, notion that any individual termite knows what it's doing or of the collective, uh, as it were, finishing a task. There are no tasks, in fact. There are simply uh, interactions, microscopic actions and interactions. So let's talk about emergence for a minute. So to, uh, I'll set my question up uh, with a little background for, for any listener. The emergence is the phenomenon where we observe attributes of a system that are not present in any of the individual components. Is that a fair definition? Uh, yes. It, I mean, it, there are many definitions of emergence, but essentially uh, you're looking for macroscopic um, structures or phenomena or properties that are not evident in, um, you know, the the behaviour um, uh, of of individuals, and people think of it in, in two, as we we divide it into two halves. One half, a good number of people don't believe exist. So the first one is weak emergence, as I understand it, where you could study hydrogen for a year and you could study oxygen for a year, and never in your wildest imagination would you have guessed that you put them together and they make water and it's wet. You know, it's got this new wetness. And yet, in weak emergence, once you study it enough and you figure out what's going on, you go, oh yeah, I see how that worked. And then you, you see it. And then there's strong emergence, which posits that there are characteristics that emerge for which you cannot take a reductionist view. You cannot in any way study the individual components and ever figure out how they produced that result and that, that this isn't an appeal to mysticism, more, more so a, a notion that maybe emergence, strong emergence is maybe a fundamental force of the universe or something like that. Did I capture that distinction and, and would you yeah, just... I, 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 think you've, I think you've got it. I mean, I'm um, definitely not a strong emergentist. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's certainly true that emergent properties, and I've, I've, I've seen this, you know, uh, a number of times in my own work, emergent properties can be surprising. They can be puzzling. Uh, it can sometimes take you quite a long time to figure out what on earth is going on. In other words, to unpick the mechanisms um, of emergence. But, but there's nothing mysterious. There's nothing, uh, in my view, that is... Uh, um, uh, uh, inexplicable um, about uh, emergence. I mean, there are plenty, of course, of emergent properties uh, in, um, in nature that, that we simply cannot uh, explain mechanically. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that they are in, inexplicable. It just means that we're not smart enough. You know, we haven't, uh, as it were, figured out what's going on. So when you were talking about the termite nest, you said the termite nest doesn't know what it's doing. It doesn't have goals. It doesn't have uh, tasks that it have a beginning and an end. Yeah. If all of that is true, then the human mind must not be an emergent phenomenon because we do have goals. We know exactly what we're doing. And, and uh, Well, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. I mean, we, we think we know what we're doing. That may well be an illusion. Um, uh, but, but carry on anyway. <laughs> well, no, no, that, that's, that's a great place to start. So you're alluding to the the studies that suggest you 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 kind of work you you do something instinctually or and then your brain kind of races to figure out why did i do that and then it reverses the order of those two things and says i decided to do it that's why i did it well um that yeah i mean that that's um one aspect which may or may not be true but no all i'm really um uh, in all, what i really mean uh, uh byron is that um you know, when you're talking about uh, human behaviors, uh, goals, motivations, and, and, and so on, what you're really looking at is the top, the very top layer um, of an extraordinary, um, you know, multi-layered process, which we barely understand. Well, we, we really don't understand at all. I mean, the, you know, the, there's an enormous um, gap, uh, um, as it were, between the low-level processes, which also we barely understand. In other words, the, you know, the interactions between individual neurons um, and, as it were, the emergence of, of mind, let alone, you know, uh, subjective uh, experience, consciousness, and so on. Um, and, and there are so many layers there, you know, which are then, are then the top layer, which is human behavior, is also mediated through language and culture and and we you know we mustn't forget that the you know you and i wouldn't have been having this conversation um you know half a million years ago uh, <laughs> you know the the point is that that the things that we can think about uh, and 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 uh, you know have a discourse over um we wouldn't be able to have a, a discourse about if it were not for this extraordinary edifice of culture, which kind of sits on top of, of, of a large number of, of human minds. You know, we are social animals um, and that's another emergent property. You know, you've got the emergent property of, of if you like, of, of mind and, and then consciousness. Then you have the emergent property of society and on top of that, another emergent property, which is culture. Um, and, you know, somewhere in the middle of that is all mixed up is language. So, you know, it's, I think it's so difficult to unpick all of this when you um, start to ask questions like, yes, but, you know, is, um, you know, how can a system uh, of emergence have, uh, have goals, have tasks? Well, you know, it, it just so happens that, modern humans within this particular um, uh, culture uh, do have what we, you know, perhaps uh, rather um, uh, pretentiously think of as, as goals and, 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 uh, uh, and motivations, but, but who knows what they really are, you know, and, and, and I suspect uh, we probably don't have to go back many um, uh, tens, uh, uh, certainly hundreds of generations, um, to find that uh, our goals and motivations were no different to most other animals, which is to eat and survive, you know, to live another day. And, and so let's work up that ladder from the brain to the mind to consciousness. So if perhaps half a million years ago, you're, you're right. Uh, but there, there are those who would maintain that we, when we got consciousness, that's when we, the, that's the moment at which, when we became conscious, that's the moment at which we, in essence, took control of our, that we, that we had goals and intentions and, and all of that subtext going on. So uh, I'll ask you uh, the unanswerable question. Where do you, how do you think consciousness comes about? 
<laughs> gosh, I wish I knew. Um, uh, Do you, you know, have I any, like a gut? Is it uh, a quantum phenomenon? Is it an just I, emergence? Is it? I, I I certainly think it's an emergent property, but but I I, I think it's. Um, I think it's such a good adaptation that I doubt it's just an accidental kind of, uh, um, in other words, I, I, I suspect that consciousness is not like um, a spandrel of San Marco, you know, the, uh, that wonderful metaphor. Um, uh, in other words, I, I think that it, it's a valuable adaptation and therefore when at some point in our evolutionary history, probably quite recent evolutionary history, when some humans, uh, as it were, uh, started to enjoy this remarkable phenomena of of uh, of um, of you know uh, being a subject and, and the subjective experience of of of, uh, um, of recognizing you know themselves and their own agency in in the world, uh, I suspect that they had such a big advantage. Um, uh, adaptive advantage over the, you know, their, their fellow humans, hominids, who didn't uh, have that experience, that, you know, rather quickly, I, I, I think it would have become a, a, a you know, a, a strongly self-selecting um, adaptation. Um, you know, I, I think it's, um, I think that, that the emergence of consciousness is deeply um, uh, tied up with being sociable. Uh, I think that in order to be social animals, we have to have theory of mind. Um, you know, to be a, a, a successful social animal, you need to be able to navigate uh, social, um, uh, you know, uh, you need to be able to navigate relationships and, and, and um, you know, the complexity of of, of, of social hierarchies, pecking orders, and such like. Um, and, you know, we know that the chimpanzee uh, are really quite sophisticated um, uh, with, you know, what we call Machiavellian intelligence. In other words, the kind of social intelligence where uh, you will um, quite deliberately manipulate um, uh, your behaviors in order to achieve some social advantage. In other words, you know, um, I'll. Um, pretend to want to 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 uh, to get to know you, not because I really want to get to know you, but, but because I know that you are friends with somebody else, and I really want to be friends with her. So that's Machiavellian intelligence, and it seems that chimpanzee are really rather good at it, and and probably just as good at it as as we, um, you know, uh, Homo sapiens. And in order to be able to have that kind of Machiavellian intelligence, you need to have theory of mind. Now, you know, theory of mind means um, having um, a, a really quite sophisticated model of, um, of your conspecifics. Now that, I think, in turn um, uh, arose out of the fact that we have complicated bodies, bodies that are difficult to control and therefore uh, we at some earlier point in our evolutionary history um, started to uh, have a quite sophisticated body self-image um, in other words an internal simulation or whatever you call it an internal model of our own our own physical bodies but of course the beauty of having a model of yourself is that you then automatically have a model of your conspecifics so I think having a self-model uh, bootstraps into having theory of mind. And then I think uh, once you have theory of mind, um, and if you then also, and I, I don't know at what, I've no idea at what point this might have come in, whether, it's a, whether it would have come after we have theory of mind, probably I think, if you can start to imitate each other, uh, in other words, do social learning. I think, I think social learning was again, an, another uh, huge step forward in the evolution of, of modern mind. Um, I mean, social learning is, is unbelievably more powerful than individual learning. I mean, suddenly the ability to pass on knowledge uh, to, you know, your children, to your, 
to your ancestors, uh, especially if you, you know, once you invent writing as well, or uh, symbols and, and, and language, writing, of course, may, came much later. But I think that all of these things were necessary, but perhaps not sufficient in themselves uh, prerequisites for uh, consciousness. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I mean, it's very interesting. I don't know if you know the work of Julian Jaynes, you know, the... I came to mind. That's right. And, and, and they weren't uh, even conscious until 500 yeah. BC and that the, the Greek gods and, and the rise of, of oracles was this, was us realizing we had lost the voice that we used to hear. Indeed, in our, indeed in, yes. In yeah. and, and I think that's, I mean, it's a radical hypothesis. Not many people buy that argument, but I think it's extremely interesting. You know, the idea that that modern consciousness may be a, a, a very recent, um, uh, uh, you know, adaptation, you know, as you say, within, as it were, recorded history, you know, back to Homeric uh, times. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it, you know, the story of, of how consciousness evolved um, uh, may never be known, of course. It's, it's like, it's like a lot of natural history, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we can only ever have just those stories. We can only ever have more or less plausible hypotheses. But but I'm absolutely convinced that um, that that key prerequisites are in um, in internal models. Uh, and and uh, you know, Dan Dennett has this wonderful um, uh, structure that he you know a, a, a conceptual framework that he calls the tower of generate and test um this set of of, of conceptual creatures that each has um a more sophisticated way of generating and testing hypotheses about what action to take next and uh, without going through the whole thing in detail um uh, uh you know his popperian creatures um have this amazing innovation of um, being able to imagine uh, um, the outcomes of actions before trying them out and therefore can imagine a bad action um, and deciding therefore not to, to try it out for real, uh, which, you know, may well be extremely dangerous. Um, and, and then he suggests that a subset of Popperian creatures are what he calls Gregorian creatures who've invented mind tools like language um, and, and therefore uh, have this additional um, uh, remarkable ability to, to learn socially from each other. And, and I think that, uh, you know, social learning and, and theory of mind um, are profoundly, in my view, implicated in uh, the emergence of consciousness. Certainly, I would, you know, I would stick my neck out and say that um, I think solitary animals um, cannot enjoy the kind of consciousness that you and I do. Um, so all, all of that to say, we, we, we don't know how it came about. And, and you, you, you said we may never know, but it's really far more intractable than that. Because we don't really know, do you agree with this, any it's not just how it came about. We don't have any science that suggests how a cloud of hydrogen could come to name itself. We don't have any science to say why, why, how is it that I can feel something? You know, how is it that I can experience something as opposed to just sensing it? Yeah. 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 And so isn't all of that to, because, you know, as I listen to you, a normal, you know, and, and along this conversation, I just replace everything with zombie, right? And the, 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 the analogy of a human without consciousness, that the zombie can imagine other, in any case. But so what would you say to that? Like, I've heard consciousness described as the, the most difficult problem, maybe the only problem left that we know neither how to ask it, nor what the answer would look like. So I, I will say that. What do you think the answer to the question of how is it that we have subject, subjective experience? What does that look like? Well, again, I've no idea. And I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, Byron. I mean, it, it is an extraordinarily difficult problem. And, and you know, what I was suggesting earlier were just, uh, you know, a, a very small number of prerequisites, um, uh, you know, 
uh, not in any sense uh, was I suggesting that that you know those are the answer to what is consciousness. Um, it you know there are um, uh, interesting um, uh, theories of consciousness. I mean you know I, I like the work very much of Thomas Metzinger, um, who uh, you know I, I think has. Um, uh, a very well to me at least a very attractive theory of consciousness because you know it, it's based upon the idea of the of the self model which and I've, I've indicated I'm interested in models um, uh, and uh, and you know his notion of the phenomenal self model now uh, you know it, it, that as you quite rightly say there are there are vast gulfs in our in our misunderstanding um, and we we certainly uh, don't even know properly what questions to answer to, or to ask rather, let alone answer. Um, but I think we're slowly getting there. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think progress has been, you know, is being made in, um, uh, in the study of consciousness. I mean, the work of, of um, Anil Seth, I think is uh, deeply interesting in this regard. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm basically agreeing with you. Um, but it, then why is it, I'm, I'm curious then, if we say there's no, we don't have a science to understand how something can experience. So I, I write a, I get a, a temperature sensor up to my computer that I write a program that it screams if, I, if it gets over 500 degrees. And then I hold a match to it and it screams. We don't think the computer is feeling pain, even though the computer is able to sense all that's going on. We don't think that there's an agent that can, feel anything. In fact, we don't even really have science to understand how something could feel. And one, and, and I, the first to admit it just kicks the can down the street, but you, you came, came out against strong emergence at the get-go. You're definitely not that. But, but couldn't you say, well, clearly we don't have, our, our basic physical laws don't account for how matter can experience things. And therefore, there might be another law at play that comes from complexity or any number of other things, that it isn't reductionist, and we, we just don't understand it. But why, how, why is it that you reject strong emergence so unequivocally, but still kind of struggle with, we don't really know any scientific way with, with physics to, to answer that question of how something can experience? Well, I, no, I, I mean, I, I'm, I think they're, they're com completely compatible positions because um, you know, I'm not saying that, that consciousness subjective experience, you know, what it is to subjective, subjectively experience something is unknowable. In other words, the process, I, I think, I, you know, I, I don't believe the process by which subjective experience happens in some, you know, complex uh, collections of matter uh, is unknowable. I think it's just very hard to figure out and, and will take us a long time, but, but I think we will figure it out. So when you think of, you know, a lot of times people look at the human brain and say, well, the reason we don't understand it is it's got a hundred billion neurons. And yet, you know, there's been an effort underway for two decades to take the nematode worms, you know, 300 and some odd 302, neurons. Yeah. Thank you. 302 neurons. And, Try to two make of which, it, interestingly, are not connected to anything. <laughs> huh. Uh, and try to, try, you know, we're talking about the, and, and try to make a digital life, so, you know, model it. So we don't even, we can't even understand how the brain works to the degree that we can reproduce a 300 neuron brain. And, hmm. and even more so, you know, there are those who suggest that a neuron may be as complicated, a single neuron may be as complicated as a supercomputer. So, what, what yeah. do you think of that? Do you think the mind, uh, the, the brain, just the brain, do you think the brain is just doing things? Why, why can't we um, understand how the nematode brain works? Well, you know, understanding, of course, is, is a, a many-layered thing. And, and, you know, at some level of abstraction, we can understand how, you know, the nervous system of of uh, C elegans works. Um, I mean, we, we can. I mean, that that's that's true. Um, and you know the you know, but 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 as as with all of science, you know, uh, understanding or, or 
a scientific model is an abstraction at some degree of 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 abstraction it's a model at some degree of abstraction and um and you know if you want to go deeper uh down the you know and in other words increase the level of granularity of that understanding that's i think when you you start to have difficulties because as you say you know when we build um you know uh, uh, as it were the um a, a computer simulation of uh, C elegans, uh, we simply cannot um, model each individual neuron um, with, you know, complete fidelity. Why not? Well, um, not just because it's extraordinarily complex, but we simply don't, you know, fully understand all the internal processes of, uh, of a biological neuron. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, uh, at some um, you know, useful, um, meaningful level of abstraction, um, figure out, you know, that a particular uh, stimulus to a particular uh, sensor in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the worm will cause, you know, a certain chain, chain reaction of, of, of um, uh, you know, activations and, and so on, which will eventually cause a muscle to twitch. Uh, so we can certainly do that. You wrote a paper, um, Robots with Internal Models, a Route to Self-Aware and Hence Safer Robots, and you alluded to that a few moments ago when you talked about an internal model. What, to yeah. what degree, I, I, let's take three terms that, that are used frequently. So one of them is self-awareness. So that means something. Um, you know, you have the, the uh, Gallup's red dot test, or something that says, I, I am a self, I, I see something in the mirror that has a red dot. I know that's me and I try to wipe it off my forehead. That would be, you know, a notion of self-awareness. Then you have, you have sentience. And of course, it doesn't, it's often misused. Sentience, of course, just means to be able to sense something, usually to feel pain. And then you have consciousness, which is this, I experience it. Does self-awareness imply sentience and does sentience imply consciousness? Or or can something be self-aware and neither sentient nor conscious? Like, how do you think those three ideas? Influence? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's it's all binary. In other words, I think there are degrees of of all of those things. Um, I mean, even simple animals have to have some limited uh, self-awareness, um, and you know, the simplest kind of self-awareness I think that that pretty much all animals need to have is. To, to be able to tell the difference between me and not me. Um, you know, <laughs> if you can't tell the difference between me um, and not me, it, you're going to have difficulty, you know, getting by in the world. Um, now, uh, you know, that I think is um, uh, a, a very limited form, if you like, of, of, self-awareness um even though uh, you know i i i wouldn't uh, uh, suggest for a moment that 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 you know simple animals that that can indeed tell the difference between me and not me um have you know sentience or consciousness um so i you know i think that these things uh, exist on a spectrum um well, do, you, do you think humans are the only example of consciousness on the planet or would you would you suspect no, no, I, I think i think again i think consciousness so I, i'm you know I, I would say that consciousness also uh, has a, 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 a you know there are degrees of consciousness mm -hmm. um i think that uh, perhaps i mean there, there is there are undoubtedly some unique attributes of humans we're almost certainly the only animal on the planet can th that can think about thinking uh, so you know this this kind of uh, um, uh, reflective or is is reflexive is that the right word here um, uh, ability to to uh, kind of ask ourselves questions as it were um, but you know but i i don't think that uh, so even though for instance a chimpanzee probably doesn't think about thinking um, I, I think it is conscious. I mean, you know, it, it certainly has plenty of other attributes of consciousness. It's, you know, it, and not only chimpanzee, but 
other animals are capable of, uh, are clearly of, uh, you know, obviously of, of feeling pain, also feeling grief, you know, feeling sadness, um, you know, when a, a, a member of the uh, of the clan, you know, is killed or, or dies. You know, the, these um, these are, uh, uh, in my view, evidence of, of of consciousness in other animals and. You know, and, and there are plenty of animals that, that we almost feel instinctively are uh, a, a consciousness, conscious to a, a, a reasonably high degree. I mean, you know, dolphins are, are another such animal. Um, one of the most puzzling ones, of course, is, is, is the octopus. You know, right, because you, you said a moment ago, a non-social animal shouldn't be able to be conscious. Exactly. And that's, that's, the, you know, that's the kind of black swan of, of, that, of, my, of that particular argument. Um, so... Uh, uh, and I was well aware of that when I said it, but uh, I think, um, um, you know, it, it's, the, I mean, clearly um, the octopus, uh, there's something else going on in the octopus, but it, it you know, the, it, we, we can nevertheless be, be pretty sure that octopus, uh, the octopus don't have or collectively don't have traditions um, in the way that many other animals do. I mean, in other words, they don't have local, localized, um, socially agreed behaviors like birdsong or, or in, in chimpanzee, you know, uh, cracking nuts uh, open um, a different way on one side, side of the mountain to the other side of the mountain. So there's clearly something very puzzling going on in, on, in, in octopus, uh, which uh, seems to buck uh, what otherwise I think is is a uh, I think a, a pretty um, uh, sound um, proposition, which is the you know the 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 in my view the role of of of, of sociability uh, in the emergence of, of consciousness. So yeah, and imagine you know I think octopus only live about three years. So you just imagine if they had like a hundred year lifespan or something, just that yeah. they could. Growing it up. So, what about plants? Is it possible that plants are self-aware, sapient, or sentient, or conscious? Um, it's yeah, good question. I, I mean, certainly plants are intelligent. Um, I mean, I'm more comfortable with the the word intelligence there. Um, but as for um, well, maybe even a limited form of, of self-awareness, a very limited form of sentience in the sense that, that, that plants clearly do sense their environment, uh, environments, plants, uh, trees, uh, you know, clearly do um, uh, sense and respond to uh, attacks, uh, you know, uh, from um, uh, neighboring plants or pests and, and appear even to be able to respond in a way that, that uh, protects themselves and their neighboring, you know, um, as it were, conspecific. So, you know, the, there is extraordinary sophistication in plant behavior, plant intelligence, that's really only just beginning to be understood. Uh, so um, uh, 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 I have a, a friend, uh, uh, a, a biologist in uh, University of Tel Aviv, Danny Chamovitz, and Danny's written a terrific book on plant intelligence that really uh, is, is, you know, well worth reading. What about Gaia? What about the Earth? Is it possible the Earth um, is, it has its own emergent self-awareness, its own emergent awareness, its own consciousness, that just as all the neurons in our brain come together to make our mind and give us consciousness, that, that there would be one. And the reason, these aren't, I don't think, purely academic questions, because at some point we're going to have to address is this computer conscious is this computer able to feel is this robot able to feel and and if we can't figure out if a tree can feel how would in the world would we ever feel out if something even that we didn't share 90 percent of our dna with so what would you think about the earth having its own will and consciousness and awareness uh that's an emergent behavior of, of all of the life forms that that live on it yeah gosh um <laughs> I think you've you've probably really stumped me there. I mean, I think this is um, uh, you're you're right. It's an interesting question uh, that I, I've absolutely no idea. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a materialist. I'm, you know, I'm not a, a, a you know, I, 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 I kind of find it difficult to understand how that might 
be the case when um, you know the the planet isn't a homogeneous um, uh, system. It isn't a, a fully connected system in in the sense that uh, that nervous systems are. Um, uh, it, I, I mean, clearly there are complex. You know, I mean, the the processes going on uh, in uh, in and on the planet are extraordinarily complex there's there's tons of emergence going on there are all kinds of feedback loops those are those, those are all undoubtedly uh, facts but whether that is uh, enough um, in and of itself uh, to give rise to any kind of uh, uh, analog of of self-awareness i'm i have to say i'm doubtful i mean it would be wonderful if it were so but I'm, I'm doubtful. Uh, I, I guess the only thing that, you, you wouldn't be able to kind of look at a human brain under a microscope and say, ah, these things are conscious. Of course. Right? Like, that's, that's um, and, and so I guess Lovelock would look back over the, and I, I don't know what his position on that question would be, but he would say the fact that the earth self-regulates so many yeah. um, of its attributes within narrow ranges. I'll ask you uh, one more then. What about the internet? Is it possible that the internet has achieved some amount of consciousness or self-awareness? I mean, it's certainly got enough processors and, and uh, on it. That it yeah, I mean, I, I think perhaps the answer to that question, and, and I've only just thought of this, or, or it's only just come to my mind, um, is that, uh, the, I, I think the answer is no, I don't think the internet is, is self-aware. And, um, and I think the reason perhaps is the same reason that, that I, I don't think the earth is self-aware, the, the planet is self-aware, even though it, it is, a, a, as you quite rightly say, a, a, a fabulously self-regulating system. Um, but, but I think self-awareness uh, and, and, and sentience and, and in turn consciousness uh, need not just highly connected networks they also need the right architecture the point of the point i'm making here um, it's a simple observation is that you know our brains uh, our nervous systems are not randomly connected networks they have architecture um, and you know that is an evolved architecture um, and it's not only evolved, of course, but it's also uh, socially conditioned. I mean, the point is that, the, you know, as I keep going on about the, you know, the only reason you, can, you and I can have this conversation is because we were both, uh, you know, we, we, we share a culture, a cultural environment, which is itself highly evolved. Uh, so, um, and, it, and I think that uh, the emergence of consciousness, as, I, as I've hinted, um, comes as part and parcel of that emergence of 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 um, of, um, uh, of communication language and and ultimately uh, culture so I think the reason that the internet as it were is unlikely to be self aware is because it just doesn't have the right architecture not because it doesn't have lots of pro processing and, and lots of connectivity it clearly has those but you know it's it's not connected um, up uh, in you know with uh, the architecture that that uh, you know that, that I think is necessary in the sense that um, you know our the architectures of, 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 of animal um, nervous systems are not random that that's clearly true isn't it they're not random if you if you just take you know a hundred billion neurons and connect them randomly you will not have uh, you know, a human brain. Right. I mean, I guess you could say there, there is an organic structure to the internet in terms of, you know, the, the backbone and the nodes, but, but I take your point. So I guess where I'm going with all of this is if we make a machine and let's not even talk about conscious for a minute. If we make a machine that is self-aware and actually can, and is sentient in the sense that it can feel the world yeah. Um, how would we know? And as the well, I, I will start with that. How would we know? Well, I think that's a problem. I, I think it's very hard to know. And you know, one of the ethical, um, uh, if you like, risks of 
AI and and especially uh, brain emulation, which is a you know in a sense a particular kind of AI, um, is that we might uh, unwittingly, unknowingly, uh, build a machine that 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 is actually experiencing, as it were, um, uh, phenomenal uh, subjectivity and uh, and even more worrying pain. Um, in other words, uh, you know, a thing that is experiencing suffering, and um, and the, the worst part about it, you're quite, you know, as you rightly say, is that we may may not even know that it is experiencing that suffering. And so, and then, of course, if it ever becomes self-aware, I mean, if my Roomba all of a sudden uh, is aware of itself, and I, we we also run the risk that we end up making a, an entire digital race of slaves, right? Of, of beings that we, that, that feel and perceive the world that we just build to, to do our, our bidding and our will. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, the whole question, the ethical question of, 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 you know, robots as slaves is, is a different question. Um, but I think, you know, let's not confuse it or conflate it with the problem of artificial suffering. You know, I, I've no, uh, um, you know, I'm much less, as it were, ethically um, uh, troubled by uh, a whole bunch of, of, of kind of zombie robots, in a sense that that have that are not awake, are not um, are not um, uh, are not um, sentient and conscious, um, because you know, because they don't have therefore therefore um, very much, uh, I, I, I'll, I won't say zero, but they, they have a rather low claim on moral patiency um, than if they were. I mean, if, if they were at all um, uh, sentient, uh, or if we believed they were sentient, then the claim, um, uh, you know, we, we, we would have to um, uh, treat them with a, a level of moral patiency uh, that we absolutely do not treat robots and AIs with right now. Um, I mean, when when robot ethics come out, or ethics and AI, and, and people say, well, what's like a, a real and immediate example that we have to think about? Aside from the use of these uh, devices in war, the one that everybody knows is the self-driving car, right? Do mm -hmm. I drive off the cliff or run over the person? One automaker has come out and specifically said, we we, we protect the driver. That's what we do. Um, as, an robot, as a robot ethicist, how do you approach that problem? Just that single, isolated, real-world problem? Well, you know, it, it, the, <laughs> I think the problem with, with ethical dilemmas, um, and particularly the trolley problem, um, is that they're very, very rare. I mean, you know, you have to ask yourself, um, how often of, of you and I, you know, we've, I mean, I guess you drive a, a car and, you know, um, you may well have been driving a car for many years. Um, how often have you, have you faced a trolley problem? I'll uh, wager the answer is never. Three times this week. Uh, no, you're, you're entirely <laughs> right. Yes. yes. So but I, I we think do know that people uh, get run over by cars. And, oh, uh, sure. And, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it, you know I mean, I'm, we I'm have not, to wrestle with the question. Because it's going to come up in everything else, medical diagnoses and um, uh, what, what drugs you give to which people for which ailments, which may or may not become lethal, uh, reactions to medicines that are rare. But, I mean, it really permeates everything, this, this assessment of risk and who bears it and who and, and, and is it fundamentally the programmer? Because that's, that's one way to say it is robots don't actually make any decisions. It's all humans. And so you just follow the coding trail back to the person who d decided to do that that way. Well, what you've just said is true. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the programmer. It's certainly humans. I mean, the, um, you know, my view, uh, and I take a very hard line on this, is that, is that humans, not robots, are responsible agents. Um, and I mean, you know, including AIs. So whatever a, uh, however a driverless car is programmed, um, uh, it's you know it cannot be held responsible. I think I think that is uh, an absolute fundamental. Um, I mean, right now, now you know, in several hundred years, you know, maybe um, uh, we might be having a slightly different conversation. 
but but right now uh, I think it's um, you know I, I take a very simple view uh, robots and AIs cannot be responsible um, only humans now you know as for what ethics do we program into a driverless car I think that has to be a societal question it has to be a con it's certainly not down to the the uh, the designer the programmer or even the manufacturer to decide um, it's you know I think it has to be a societal question so um, I mean you're right that even you know that when we have driverless cars there will still be accidents and and hopefully there'll be very few accidents but they're still occasionally very rarely we hope um, um, you know people will still be killed in car accidents you know where the driverless car as it were did the wrong thing now what we need um, is uh, several things I think we need to be able to um, uh, find out why the driverless car um, went wrong and that really means that driverless cars need, need to be fitted with the equivalent of a, a flight data recorder in aircraft uh, what I call an ethical black box and we, we have a paper on that that uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks that we're giving called the case for an ethical black box um, and we need to have you know regulatory structures that mean that um, you know manufacturers are obliged to to fit these kind of black boxes to driverless cars and that and the you know the accident investigators uh, have the uh, authority and the power to be able to um, uh, to look at the data in those ethical black boxes and find out, find out what, what went wrong. But then, you know, even when you have all of that structure in place, which we, I think we must have, um, uh, there will still be a, occasional accidents. And the, the only way to resolve that is by um, having ethics in driverless cars, if, if indeed we, we do decide to have ethics in them at all, which I think is itself not a given. I think that's a, a, a difficult question to, to ask of, of itself. But if we did uh, fit driverless cars with ethics, then those ethics need to be decided by the whole of society uh, so that we collectively, as it were, take responsibility for those small number of cases where um, you know, there is an accident and, and people are harmed. Fair enough. Um, so I have three final questions for you. The first is um, Weizenbaum, you know, famously made Eliza. It was for the, for the benefit of the listener. It was a, a computer program in the 60s that uh, was a simple. You said I have a, you would type I have a problem and say, what kind of problem do you have? I'm having trouble with my parents. What kind of trouble are you having with your parents? And it goes... Uh, on and on and like that. And, and Weizenbaum uh, wrote it or had it written and then <clears throat> noticed that people were developing emotional attachments to it, even though they knew all it was was a simple program. And wow. he kind of did a 180, turned on it all and said, we should never use robots. He, he, he distinguished between deciding and choosing. And he said, robots should only decide. It's a computational action. They should never choose. Choosing is up for people to do. What what do you think he got right and wrong? And just kind of what are your, what are your thoughts on that distinction? He, he thought it was fundamentally wrong for people to use robots in positions that require empathy but because it, it doesn't kind of elevate the machine. It debases the human. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly uh, have a strong view that um, we uh, should, uh, I mean, if we, if we do um, uh, use robots at all as uh, kind of personal assistants or chatbots or, or um, uh, advisors, companions, whatever. I think it's absolutely vital that that should be done within a very strict ethical framework. Um, so, for instance, um, uh, to ensure that that um, nobody is deceived and nobody uh, is exploited. So, I'm particularly thinking of of um, well, the deception is is the deception of believing that that you're actually um, uh, talking to a person, or or even if you even if you realise you even if you know you're not talking to a person, believing that the system, the machine, is caring for you, that you know the machine has feelings for you. So, you know, I think that we need to. You know, I'm not. Um, I, I I I certainly uh, don't take a hard line that we we 
should never have companion systems because I think there are situations where they're, um, you know, they're undoubtedly um, valuable. And I'm thinking, for, for instance, here of, of um, surrogate pets. Um, and there's no doubt that, um, you know, when uh, an elderly person, perhaps with dementia, goes into a care home, one of the biggest traumas they experience is, is leaving their pet behind. And people I've spoken to work in, in care homes for, for the elderly, uh, people with, elderly people with dementia say that they would love for their, um, you know, their um, residents to have surrogate pets. Um, now, you know, it's likely that, that um, those elderly persons may, um, they may recognize that the robot is, uh, you know, that the, the, the robot pet is, is not a real animal, but nevertheless still may um, come to feel that the robot um, in some sense cares for them. I think that's okay because I think the, as it were, the, the balance of benefit versus, uh, um, as it were, the psychological harm of, uh, of being deceived in that way weighs more heavily in terms of the benefit, you know, the therapeutic, as it were, benefit of the robot pet but really the point i'm making is that i think um you know we need strong ethical frameworks guidelines and, and regulations that that um that would um uh mean that that vulnerable people particularly children disabled people uh, elderly people perhaps with dementia um uh, cannot be uh, or are not exploited uh, perhaps by um, you know, um, uh, uh, unscrupulous manufacturers or designers, for instance, um, into, um, uh, you know, well, by systems that, that appear to, uh, to have feelings, appear to have empathy. That's right. Weizenbaum said, when the machine says, I understand, it's just a lie that there's no I there and nothing. Understands. Indeed. Yes, exactly right. Um, and, and, you know, I, 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 sorry. No, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, you know, I think that, um, um, you know, rather like uh, uh, Toto in The Wizard of Oz, we should always be able to pull the curtain aside. It should, the machine nature of the, of the system should always be transparent. So, for instance, I think it's very wrong um, uh, for people to uh, um, find themselves on the telephone um, and believe that they're talking to a person, a human being, when in fact they're talking to a machine. I agree. Um, that happens. I mean, it's so you get the call and it's hi. This is this is Debbie. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, second question: do, What about science fiction? Do you consume any in written or movie or TV form that you think ah that could happen? Like that's that uh, I could see that future unfolding. Oh, lots. I mean, I well, I, certainly I consume a lot of science fiction. I mean, not all of it. Um, by any means, would I, I like or uh, you know expect or like to see happening? Um, obviously, that you know often the best sci-fi is dystopian, um, but that again that's okay because it you know good science fiction uh, is like a, a, a thought experiment. Um, but um, you know I like the utopian kind too, and and you know I rather like the uh, uh, you know the the kind of uh, AI utopia of the culture, which is the Ian M. Banks uh, culture novels. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a world, or a, not, a, not just a world, but, a, um, you know, a, a, a universe in which, um, you know, there are um, hugely uh, intelligent and rather inscrutable, but, but nevertheless uh, rather kindly and benevolent AIs, essentially, um, you know, looking after us us poor humans. I, I kind of like that idea. And finally, um, you're writing a lot and, and how can people keep up with you and follow you and get all of your latest thinking? Can you just go through the litany of, of resources? Sure. Well, um, I, I don't blog very often because I'm, I'm generally very busy with other stuff, but, but certainly um, um, uh, people you know I, i'd be delighted if people go to my blog uh, which is just alanwinfield.blogspot.com um and also follow me on twitter and that's uh, again i'm easy to find it's uh, it's i think just at alan underscore winfield um and similarly 
you know, there are quite a few um, um, uh, videos, talks, uh, you know, uh, uh, talks that I've given um, uh, to be found on on YouTube and, and online generally. So, um, yeah, um, be delighted to. Uh, and, and if people want to get in touch directly, again, it's easy to find my um, contact details online. All right. Well, thank you. It has been an incredibly fascinating hour and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Byron. Um, likewise, uh, very much enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.